Well, good morning again. It is good to see you this morning. And yes, the rain is going to stop in time for the baptism. I'm excited. Yeah, it's going to be a glorious time, and I hope you can join us. Well, I hope you're excited to start something new this morning. Uh, we're beginning a brand new series in the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And we just finished the book of Nehemiah, and I like to move around in the scripture, but before we dive into it, I just thought it might be helpful to kind of get a big overview, a big picture of the structure of the Bible, the way it's organized. I mean, everybody knows we got the Old and New Testament, right? But the books within them, they're not organized chronologically, they're not even organized alphabetically, that would be kind of cool, but there is a grouping to them. And so many people aren't familiar with this, but within the Old Testament, there's three categories. The books are grouped as historical, poetical, and prophetical. So the historical books contain history, and the, pro the poetical books contain poetry, and the prophetical books contain prophecy. And the way they're divided is by major and minor prophets. I mean... I don't know what you got to do to get a major label. It's not necessarily the length, maybe it is, but kind of knowing this structure can help you find books in the Bible and also understand how the pieces fit together. And then there's a division to the New Testament. There's historical books that have history, the Pauline epistles and the general epistles. Now, epistles are letters that contain instruction and Pauline epistles are written by Paul, and those are broken into two groups. Those written to churches, and those written to individuals. And then the general epistles are writers other than Paul. Now, we know God is the author, but these are the men he used and worked through in penning his word. And so this is kind of the structure of the Bible. Now, about a year ago, we finished up in the book of Proverbs, Old Testament poetical book. After that, we did First and Second Peter, an epistle, and we just finished the book of Nehemiah, an Old Testament um, historical book. And so right now, Dan is teaching through the Gospel of John, a New Testament historical book. And so we're going to be going over to First, Second, and Third John, which is one of the general epistles. So I like to keep it balanced as we teach the whole counsel of God. I think it helps to have a steady diet. And so we generally teach through books. We sometimes do a topical series. But when we're teaching through books, we like to move around within the scripture. So we're going to be in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And then after that, I'm pretty sure we're going to go back to the Old Testament to the book of Esther. It's not a long book. But I think that's where we'll go next. And so this morning, then, we'll be kicking off this new series. Well, in this series, we're going to be looking at three letters that were written by the Apostle John. This is the same man, one of Jesus' three closest friends. And he's the same man who penned the Gospel of John the historical book, and also the book of Revelation. And the letters are thought to have been written later in his life, perhaps around 85 to 90 AD. And they were 
written probably five to ten years after the gospel, but before he was exiled to the island of Patmos, where God gave him the book of Revelation. So it's kind of near the end of his life, and they're not addressed to any specific person or church. You won't find them addressed that way. They are addressed to believers in general, and they were meant to be circulated amongst the churches. And of course, God intended them for us as well. So a key verse in starting out that kind of captures the sense of the whole book is in 1 John 5.13. And it says this, I write these things to you, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, if you asked a group of Christians if they have eternal life, what type of answers do you think you get? Some might say, I don't know. Some might say, well, I hope so. Some might say, I think so. But these letters were not written so that you can think you have eternal life. They were written so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, back in our days in Albuquerque, our church there, about once a year, Franklin Graham would come and he would uh, give the message. It was usually in the fall. You know, Franklin is Billy Graham's son and he is the founder of, of Samaritan's Purse and Operation Christmas Child. So our church would give thousands of shoeboxes and he would come to receive those and he would lead us in a message. I don't know if you know it or not, but this year Riverside is going to be a drop-off location for Operation Christmas Child for our area. So we're going to have a lot of shoeboxes. Maybe, maybe Franklin will come speak one Sunday. I don't know. I'll, I'll text him after the service and <laughs> see if he'll come. But I remember something that Franklin Graham said in one of his messages and I'll never forget it. He said this in his deep North Carolina accent. He said, I'm not talking about thinking nothing. He said, I'm talking about knowing. Do you know that if you died tomorrow, you'd be in heaven with the Lord? Now, I guess in North Carolina, <laughs> yeah, that's... He's different than his dad, Billy. But in North Carolina, I guess the word Lord has two syllables. I don't know. Lord, <laughs> like that. You got to kind of learn how to talk. But he said that. And I think this is a good word for us as we start this series. I'm not talking about thinking nothing. I'm not talking about thinking nothing. Say that with me. I'm not talking about thinking nothing. Good job. Way to go on the coffee today, Mark. That's right. I'm not talking about thinking nothing. I'm talking about knowing. Say that. I'm talking about knowing. Amen. That's what the Gospel of John is talking about. Knowing that you have eternal life. Now, I realize that you have to think in order to know. And I'm not saying stop thinking and I'm not saying check your brain at the door. That's the worst thing you could do. We want to be engaged mentally as we're going through the Word of God. But what I am saying is that thinking is not the end goal. Knowing is the end goal. More than 30 times in 1 John alone, he writes, we know. We know. Over and over again. He says, 
We know we are in him. We know that we have passed from death to life. We know that we belong to the truth. We know that he lives in us. We know that we are children of God. He says this 30 some times. And I'm thankful that along with that, he also writes six times, this is how we know. You'll find that exact phrase. This is how we know. Now, this word that's translated know, it's the word gnosis. The word gnosis means knowledge. It means like complete or absolute knowledge. God wants you to know his word, his truth, to know him. Now, that in contrast to agnostic, agnostic, ah, not, Gnosis, knowing, not knowing. See, an agnostic would say, I don't know if there's a God. I don't have enough reason to believe. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. That's an agnostic. Well, the word agnostic is closely related to another English word, ignoramus. <laughs> Seriously, they both mean the same thing, not knowing. But God doesn't hide his truth from us. He wants us to know. Again, 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Those who believe in the name, the reputation, the character, the history, all that the Son of God has done so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, if you don't know this verse by heart, I want to encourage you to memorize it this week. Write it on a card. Put it in your car. Put it on your refrigerator in your bathroom. You want to know this verse. Let's just remember it together. Because, see, God wants you to have 100% confidence in your salvation. He wants you to be absolutely certain of your salvation. And that's where our title lies for this series. This series is called absolute certainty and we're going to be going through the books of first second and third john we want to have absolute certainty we want to know and so this morning we're going to start by focusing on absolute certainty of god's truth and we're going to be in first john chapter 4 verses 1 through 4 and the outline has two simple parts the purpose and the plan in verse 1 and 2 and then the proclamation in verse 3 and 4. So we'll jump into our text. And we'll read the whole thing. Because it's really only four verses. So let's read through it. And then we'll work our way through it piece by piece. As we usually do. So 1 John 1, 1 through 4 says. And I'm in the 1984 NIV translation. It says that which was from the beginning. Which we have heard. Which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write these things to make our joy complete. So this is God's word to us. Inspired by God, penned through a man named John. 
Now, this verse seems pretty simple on the surface, but there is a lot going on within this. And so I think as we break it down, we'll not only have a greater understanding of it, but we'll have a greater appreciation for God and what he's given us in this passage. So let's work our way through it, starting with the person and the plan in verses one and two. So John begins by speaking of that which was from the beginning. Or more clearly, that which was even before the beginning. John began his gospel in the same way. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So before time began, before creation, before anything came into existence, the word was with God and the word was God. They're together in the beginning. So this says that the word is a person. And in verse 14 of, of the gospel of John chapter 1, it says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the father full of grace and truth. So the, that which was in the beginning is first of all the person of Jesus Christ. That's what it's referring to here. But I think it's more than just that. What else was there in the beginning? There was God the Father. There was God the Holy Spirit. There was God the Son. But there was something else. Let me read you Titus chapter 1 verses 2 and 3. It says, A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. In other words, God's plan of salvation, his plan to save you and me through faith, faith in, in Jesus Christ and, and his offer of eternal life to us, that was in place before time began. Revelation 13 verse 8 speaks of the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. God knew what was going to happen. He put the pieces in place. It was all planned in advance. So that which was from the beginning refers to the person of Jesus Christ and the plan of salvation through his death, burial, and resurrection and our faith and trust in that. That's what was from the beginning. Isn't it nice to know that you were not an afterthought? Before God ever created you or created me, before he ever created you, he knew all that you would do. He knew you would rebel against him. You knew, he knew you'd be born sinful. We talked about the parenting class. I love little kids. They are like the cutest little pagans I've ever seen. You know, but that's what they are. They're pagans. They're separated at birth from God. They have a sin nature. They need to be regenerated. God knew that. And before he even created us, he had a plan. To save us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now what's more than that? He doesn't hide this from us. He never did and he doesn't now. He began telling of it right after time began. As soon as mankind fell into sin and sin entered the world and death through sin. God began talking about this plan. We see it in Genesis chapter 3 in verse 15. Where he talks about the offspring of the woman. That would crush Satan's head. And we see it a few verses later. Where God goes out. 
and kills an animal so that he could create a covering, a skin to cover man's shame. That was a sacrifice. That was a blood sacrifice to be a covering for mankind. And you will find that every book of the Old Testament points in some way to Jesus Christ, either specifically, prophetically, typographically. Joseph points to Jesus Christ. The, the living water coming from the rock points to Jesus Christ. The manna, the bread from heaven, points to Jesus Christ. It all points to Jesus Christ. So there was a great anticipation of this salvation that God had promised before time began. Listen to what 1 Peter writes, or what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll read you verses 10 and 11. It says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest of care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The Old Testament prophets, they said, this is pointing forward to something glorious that God's going to do. What's it going to be? When will it happen? They wanted to understand that. They didn't get to see it fully. Remember the New Testament account of Simeon after the birth of Jesus? God had promised Simeon that he would not pass away until he had seen God's salvation. And Mary and Joseph come to dedicate the baby at the temple. And there's this old, old man, Simeon. And in Luke chapter 2, it says, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. He had seen God's salvation, the person of Jesus Christ. He didn't yet understand the plan, but Simeon saw God's salvation. He says, I can die now. You've been faithful. You fulfilled the promise. I've seen it with my own eyes. God has not hidden it. And so, this is what John is referring to in verse 1, when he says, That which was from the beginning, from before time began, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. John also saw what God had promised. He saw the person of Jesus Christ physically, and he saw the very plan of salvation unfolding before him. And this account that we're reading, it isn't a fable. It's not folklore. This is an eyewitness account of the things that John saw firsthand. John wasn't the only one who saw it. He says in there, that which we have heard, which we have seen, which our eyes, with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. Just think of some of the things that the Apostle John and the other disciples and some of the other people around them saw. Think about some of the things they saw. They saw Jesus casting out demons and healing every kind of incurable disease. Incurable. And he healed every single one of them. Thousands of people were brought to him. And he healed them. Every one of them. 
They saw him calm a storm with his words. They're about to drown in the boat and he calmed it with his words. They saw him walking on water. Peter, James, and John saw him transfigured before them where they saw the full glory of Christ and they saw Moses and Elijah standing with them. They saw that. Wow. They saw Jesus crucified and placed dead in a tomb. They saw him alive again after the resurrection. They saw him ascend into heaven. They saw the Holy Spirit descend on the people on the day of Pentecost. They saw God do miraculous works through their own hands as he sent them out to share the good news. Now imagine seeing just one of these things. It would change your life forever. But they saw one thing after another, after another, after another. God's power displayed. No wonder that Peter and John together in Acts chapter 4 verse 20 says, We cannot help speaking about that which we have seen and heard. I can't hold it in. I've seen so much. And what did they hear? They heard the very words of truth and of life. They heard wisdom like they had never heard before coming from Jesus. They heard God the Father speak on the Mount of Transfiguration. They heard his voice. What did they touch? Man, they touched the bread that he multiplied. They touched some of the dead people that he raised to life again. They touched leopards that he healed. They stuck their oars in the water that had been calmed from a ferocious storm. Instantly calmed. John himself, in the upper room in the Last Supper, he got to recline against Jesus, laying his head against the chest of Jesus. They got to touch the resurrected Lord. They touched these things. Now, the, the Apostle Peter says something similar in his second epistle. I'll read you 2 Peter 1. 16 through 18, Peter writes, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven and we were with him on the sacred mountain. We saw, we heard it ourselves. We can't help but tell these things that we saw. Now some have suggested that these gospel accounts began as true stories, but over the millennia they were exaggerated. They took on a life of their own. They're like a fish story. Every time it's retold, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That didn't happen. We have the gospel of John, a fragment of that gospel that was not too many years after the very original was penned, like first century. And we have hundreds of copies of these documents made in the years that followed. And there is incredible precision and accuracy in them. It hasn't changed. But not only that, there wasn't enough time for a mythological Jesus to grow up. There wasn't enough time between the events that the eyewitnesses saw and the recording of the events. 
Think about this. Think if today somebody wrote a book that said, in New York City, on September 11th, 2001, the Twin Towers fell when a hot air balloon ran into them. It, people who witnessed it are still alive. They say, you're nuts. They would vehemently oppose that. There was no opposition to the writing, the recording of these events. Not even Jesus' enemies denied the miracles that he did. In fact, their actions stand to further confirm the truth of the accounts. There wasn't enough time for a mythological Jesus. Well, these apostles saw, heard, touched these things firsthand. What did Muhammad ever see when 610 years later he comes out of a cave claiming to have had a revelation from the angel Gabriel? What did he see? Nothing. What did he hear? Nothing. What did he touch? Nothing. Who saw it along with him? Nobody. He just came out of a cave 610 years after Jesus and said, here's my revelation. We'll call this the Quran. What did Joseph Smith see when he reportedly, you know, received this revelation that was the Book of Mormon? Nothing really. Well, he took a seeing stone and put it in his hat and he buried his face in the hat. And then he narrated what was to be the Book of Mormon. Who else saw that? Nobody. Thousands of people saw the miracles of Jesus and the resurrected Jesus Christ. There is no comparison between Christianity and Islam or Hinduism or Mormonism. It, it's laughable to even think of comparing those religions. See, Christianity is not a mythical religion at all. It's built upon a rational, historical, objective knowledge of God. Both intellectual and experiential. There's no comparison. So don't listen to the voices of the world that say, you're a fool, you're ignorant. You're an ignoramus to follow that Jesus. No, you're not. You're wise, you're educated, you're informed. This is a real, truthful account. John, so John goes on, he says, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. There's a lot in that phrase, word of life. When we think of word, we think of a segment of a, like a sentence, a piece of a sentence. That's what we think of when we think of word. But when the Jews hear word, they think of God because he revealed himself through his word. It was the self-expression of God. And when the Greeks, when they think of word, logos, they think of, they taught for centuries their philosophers about this force that was the cause of everything. This force. And so they believe that that's what brought everything into existence. So here, when John speaks of logos, the word of life, he's saying that Jesus is all of this. He's the eternal one, the very expression of God that the Jews wrote about and talked about. He's the reason that everything exists. He's what they've been talking about all along. They just didn't know it. It's the logos, the word of God. 
And so verse uh, 2 says, make sure I'm up here. Here we go. Verse 2 says, the life appeared. We have seen it and we testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. This, the life that appeared, again, this is referring to Jesus. Jesus is life. John also wrote in his gospel in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 4, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. In him was life. Now, anybody can claim to be life. I could say, I'm life. I gave life to my kids. I'm life. Yeah, but anybody can claim it, but Jesus proved it. How did he prove that he was life? The resurrection. Not just of himself, but of others. He raised dead people to life. Only he could do that. Only God could do that. In John uh, chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, it's the, it's the encounter at the well. And Jesus said to the lady there, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Eternal life. And then he said, do you believe this? He raised others from the dead. He rose himself from the dead. John saw both of these firsthand. And he's declaring the life appeared. The word of life. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the most well-attested fact of ancient history. Nothing is backed up by as much supporting evidence as the resurrection of Jesus. So we have this life that existed eternally and then appeared or was manifested, your translation might say, to mankind. This is speaking of his incarnation. Of God coming down to earth in human flesh. Incarnation into flesh. God made himself accessible to mankind in the most basic way imaginable. He walked amongst them. He became flesh. They could hear. They could see. They could touch him. You can't get any more accessible than that. I love the words of the song, Mary, Did You Know? I really like that song. And the song says, did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? And when you kiss your little baby, you've kissed the face of God. That's the wonder of the incarnation. Emmanuel, God with us. God came down and walked among us and made himself accessible so that mankind could see and hear and touch him. Well back to verse 2. It says the life appeared. And we have seen it. And testified to it. And we proclaim to you. That the eternal life. Which was with the father. And has appeared to us. Two distinct. Persons of the Godhead. The father. And the son Jesus Christ. One God. You see allusion to the Trinity. As Dan talked about. A couple weeks ago. But he adds a new element to this life that is Christ. And he says in verse 2 that he is eternal life, which existed with God the Father in eternity past. It was then, before time even began, 
that God laid out his plan for all mankind so that we might share in his eternal life. He alone is life. But he said, I've got a plan. You can share in my life. Well, that's the person in the plan. I want to look at the proclamation in verses 3 through 4. So verse 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, probably since the very time that death entered the world, man has been searching for immortality, a way to live forever, to avoid the curse of death. There were myths that came about long before Jesus was ever born. One of them was the fountain of youth. The fountain of youth is actually recorded by Herodotus in the 5th century B.C. If you could just find the fountain of youth, this water, you drink it, you bathe in it, and you become all young again. Immortality, you'll never grow old, you'll never die. Well, this myth didn't die out for a long time. Fast forward to the 16th century A.D. Spanish uh, conqueror Juan Ponce de Leon. He was the first governor of Puerto Rico. He reportedly came to Florida in 1513 searching for the fountain of youth. And the Native Americans told, you'll, told him, you'll find it on Bimini Island. And so they searched the Bahamas for the fountain of youth. Now, people might not be looking for the fountain of youth anymore, but they haven't stopped searching for immortality. It comes in a little different form these days. Some people try through medications or through genetic engineering to find the key to eternal life. If we could just get it right, we could be immortal. We'll never die. We'll live forever. Others are turning to cryogenics. We'll just freeze our body and preserve it until a time when science finds the key. And then they can wake us up and resuscitate us and we'll live forever. That's freaky. That's like ghoulish, <laughs> you know. You get a really bad freezer burn, I think, after all those years, and you'd still be old. But some people are looking to cryogenics for eternal life. Well, mankind will never find immortality apart from Jesus Christ. Now, this is, I actually said that earlier account was at the well. I don't think that was. But here's where Jesus met the Samaritan women at the well. He said in John 4, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. <clears throat> but whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, that sounds like the fountain of youth, doesn't it? Water welling up into eternal life. But it wasn't talking about physical water. He's talking about a relationship with God through himself, through Jesus Christ. Jesus said this very thing. He said in John 17, 3, listen to this. He said, now this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ who you have sent. This is eternal life. See, eternal life comes through a relationship with the one true God through Jesus Christ. You will never find immortality, eternal life, any other way. That's why John says in verse 3 of our text, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, 
so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship, relationship, sharing in the eternal life that is in God. Well, the story is told of back in the, in the wild west of a man named Juan Rodriguez. No, Jose Rodriguez. Not the baseball player. Jose Rodriguez was a bank robber. And he preferred, he lived in Mexico, but he preferred to rob banks in America. And so he'd slip across the border, rob the banks, and then flee back into Mexico to hide. Well, one day a Texas ranger came across Jose Rodriguez in a saloon. And he pulled out his gun. And he said, you tell me where that money is hidden or I'm going to blow your head off. And there was just one problem. Like Jose Rodriguez didn't understand English. And the Texas Ranger didn't understand Spanish. And so the Ranger just kept getting more worked up. You tell me where the money is. And so finally a young man steps, and say, steps up and says, well, let me translate for you. And so Jose Rodriguez says to the young translator, he says, don't shoot. He says, the money, go to the end of town. There's a well there. Uncover the, the bricks covered with moss. And in the well, you'll find over a million dollars. Well, the ranger says to the young translator anxiously, what did he say? Tell me what he said. And the translator says, he dares you to shoot him. <laughs> Go ahead, take a shot. You see, the translator found something of great value. But he didn't proclaim it. He didn't pass it on. He wanted to keep it for himself. That's human nature, isn't it? We find something valuable. I don't want anybody else getting in on this. I want to keep this treasure to myself. But the apostles didn't do that. They proclaimed it. They told what they had seen. They told about the very thing that mankind had been searching for for millennia. We have seen the eternal life. And we proclaim it to you. That goes against human nature. They even proclaimed it to people that were trying to kill them. Who does that? Only a person that's transformed by the spirit of God. Whose life is turned around. These guys were cowards. And they became courageous for the gospel. And every single one of them but one. Everyone but one died a brutal death. And they never recanted. They never backed down on their story because they had seen it. It was burned into their mind. So they were willing to tell. But more than just God gave them this power, they didn't have to keep it to themselves because the treasure was not limited. It was unlimited. God's salvation is sufficient for all. John 3.16, whoever believes in him, for God so loved the world that whosoever shall believe in him will, will inherit eternal life. There's enough for everyone. They didn't have to keep it to themselves. So question, what about you? If you've received the gift of eternal life, are you keeping it to yourself like Jose Rodriguez? Or are you proclaiming it like the apostles did? See, it's not an option. It's not a suggestion by God. He didn't say to me, hey, Paul, you know, yeah, I don't know. If you feel like it after the game, 
you know, you, you could go down there and talk to that guy about the gospel. You don't have to, though. Don't worry about it. <laughs> he didn't make it optional. He commanded it. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're to proclaim this eternal life. Why should we worry about our own physical life when we have eternal life and to die is gain? What do we have to fear? So these apostles, they proclaimed it. And then finally we come to verse 4 where it says, we write this to make our joy complete. Now, I, I just dug into this a little bit. Yours might say we write this to make your joy complete. Mine says our joy complete. Some says so that you may share in our joy. It's all the same thing, but they're saying it's so that we may all be filled with joy. Joy comes from the presence of the Lord. Now, keep one thing in mind. This, this, this epistle, this letter, is not an evangelistic message. It's not written to unbelievers so that they may receive the gospel. It's written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. It's written to the church. Why? So that we might know that we have eternal life. Why? So that we might be encouraged. So that we might have hope. So that we might persevere against opposition. So that we might be filled with joy. That's the purpose of this letter. To you and to me. To the church. Now, it can be used for evangelism. All scriptures, God breathes, suitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, training, and righteousness. We can use it in evangelism. But this is meant for you. That you might have complete joy. Let me read you what Second Peter, or I'm sorry, what Peter goes on to say, First Peter chapter one, verses eight and nine. Because see, both Peter and John start out by saying, "We saw this. We saw it. We touched it. We heard it. We saw." You haven't seen it like they did. I haven't seen it. But listen to First Peter one eight and nine. Though you have not seen him, thank you for recognizing that. Though you have not seen him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Isn't that beautiful? This joy isn't just for the ones that saw him. They're proclaiming what they saw so that we too might believe and when we believe even though we haven't seen them we're filled with a great inexpressible joy the fullness of joy and that's what this last verse is talking about that's for you believers joy for you you may not see them but you can have this inexpressible great joy well I want to wrap up by first summarizing kind of what we've been through. The letter was written that you might know that you have eternal life. And there's a lot packed into these four verses. In fact, they were one sentence in the original language. It just ran on and on and on. But there's a lot in here. And let's just recap what we've seen here. They were written that you might know that you have eternal life. And it breaks down that Jesus is the eternal God. And he existed before all things. God appeared physically and was seen by many, many thousands saw him. 
Jesus is the word of life, the logos. He's the self-expression of God. He's the fullest expression of God. He's the reason for everything that exists. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Jesus. Jesus is distinct from the person of God the Father. He was with the Father. He's one God with the Father, but they're not the same. Eternal life can only come through a relationship or fellowship with him. You can chase after medications or cryogenics or the fountain of youth, but it will never bring you eternal life. It can only come through Jesus Christ. And when we have it, it leads us to the fullness of joy, great and inexpressible joy. It's so good you can't even find the words for it. But another thing, we're to proclaim this eternal life that we have. We're not to keep it in. We're not to be Jose. We're to be John and Peter proclaiming the life, the word that has been made known to us. You can know all these things with absolute certainty because God's word is truth. Now this afternoon, we're going to hear the testimonies of six people who have embraced the eternal God and have received eternal life. You're going to hear the joy of their salvation as they share their testimony. And they're going to be baptized to identify, to show that they have fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. I believe the rain's going to stop around 2 o'clock. It's going to be cool. We won't have sun beating down on us. And it's going to be a glorious time of worship. And I hope that you can be there as well to see it. But maybe you're not a believer yet. I said this is written to the church. But maybe you're not a believer yet. Maybe you've never taken the time to consider who Jesus is and what he's done. Or maybe you're just a person whose head is filled with questions. All kinds of questions. How could God have existed before time? How could he have made the universe by his spoken word? Why did he allow evil to enter the world? What about those who never heard about the gospel? And on and on. You can have all kinds of questions. God has given us many great answers in his word. But he hasn't told us everything. But he's told us more than enough. That we may know who he is and that we may place our trust in him with absolute certainty. You don't understand everything about how your cell phone works. But you believe it works. And, it, and you don't, it doesn't, not understanding doesn't keep you from using it, right? You pick it up, believing. I dial this number. I'm going to get to talk to my friends. We don't understand everything about God. But it shouldn't keep us from trusting in him. We know enough. He's given us everything we need for life, eternal life, and godliness for growth in our faith. We can know it, and we can be absolutely certain. So these are the scriptures that testify about me, Jesus said. But some people, he said, to some, he said, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. These scriptures testify about me, but you refuse to come to me to have life. That's John 5. Verse 39 and 40. It's not that you can't trust, but that you won't. My son asked a co-worker recently, if I prove to you that the Bible is true, would you believe in it? Would you follow it? Guy didn't know. I don't know. I don't know. 
See, it's not that he can't believe, it's that he won't. He wants to cling to other things. God's given us plenty of truth. Don't let that be you that won't come to Jesus for eternal life. Don't that let, let that be you. You can receive the gift of eternal life today. You can be filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. But you have to admit that you're a sinner. And you have to believe that God came in flesh in Jesus Christ. And that he died for your sin. And that he rose to life conquering sin and death. You have to put your trust in that. There's lots of evidence in here, but it still comes down to faith. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. You have to trust in that. God says today is the day of salvation. You can have eternal life. But you got to do business with God. Don't let today pass you by. If you are not in Christ, if you haven't been saved, you don't have his eternal life, don't let another day go by. Let's... Just pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise your name. We praise your name forever as we sung. You're the eternal God. You came and you bled and you died for me. You conquered death and you rose again because your life, your logos, your eternal life. And you're returning. You're returning to reward those who love you. And to judge those who refuse to turn from evil and to trust in you. God, I believe that with all my heart. I believe that you alone are the way, the truth, and the life. And I surrender my life to you. I surrender my will completely to you. God, be my Lord. Be my Savior. Be the one that I follow and obey every single day. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship the Lord together.